Uh, as you may know, you join us uh, midway through our summer psalms uh, summer series, where we consider what the psalms may have to teach us. And before we dive into the very long Psalm 78, let's pray. Oh God, thank you that the Psalms speak of what it is to be human, that they point to a life addressed to you. May this morning we learn what it is to live in your story. May you take the words I've prepared and whatever else you want to do and use them to your glory to speak to each of our hearts. Amen. It's striking that the, and I've been struck by this over the last few weeks listening to uh, the sermons on other psalms, the way in which the questions the psalms ask still resonate on a deeply human level with each of us. That whereas in culture at the moment, the questions might be asked in slightly different ways, they are still so often fundamentally the same question. Consider this from one of the songs on Florence and the Machine's uh, latest album. Sometimes I think it's getting better and then it gets much worse. Is it just part of the process? Well, Jesus Christ, it hurts. Though I should know better, well, I can make this work. Is this just part of the process? Well, Jesus Christ, it hurts. You need a big God, big enough to hold your love. You need a big God, big enough to fill you up. So there is this constant tussle with what it means to lead a fulfilled life. What it means to seek meaning in the ups and downs and pain of life. And what I want to suggest is that that is the concern of Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is showing us what it means to lead a fulfilled life. Let's, consider, let's look at the verses 4 to 8, which tell us why the psalm was written. Because we're told in verse 5 that God established a decree in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. And then in verse 6, so that the next generation may know them, the children near them born, and rise up and tell them to that children. And then verse 7 crucially says, so that they should seek their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a heart who a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So fundamentally, the psalmist is saying that to live a fulfilled life is to be a generation whose heart is steadfast and who is faithful to God. And the answer that the psalmist gives to the question as to how one does that is threefold. It's found in verse 7. Look, the psalmist says we are to hope, we are to remember, or not forget, and we are to obey. What do those words mean? Well, I think hope in this context. The psalmist is talking about to risk your future on the reality of God, to direct your love and your life towards the particular end of God. Then, when he talks about remembering or not forgetting, it is to hold on to what is true and to understand what happened. The crucial thing to point out here is that none of us remember neutrally. 
we always remember from a particular point of view, and that influences how we tell the story of what has happened. A key thing that discriminates as to how we remember is our end, is our hope, is the end of the story that we want to tell defines the beginning and the middle of the story that we then tell. Consider, for example, two people, one who voted one way in the, refer in the Brexit referendum, the other who voted another way in the Brexit referendum. When you ask them what's happened over the last two years, they would tell that story very differently. There might be some of the common themes, there might be some common data points. They might say, well, things are going badly and we don't seem to be, the cabinet doesn't seem to be getting on. But what that means would mean something quite different to each of them. On the one hand, we might get a story about the way in which the government is failing, and on the other hand, we might get a story about how, the kind of the pro how Brexit is never going to end up well. But in both cases, that story is shaped by your prior commitment to whether or not you think the thing is a good thing. It's shaped by your hope. So we don't remember neutrally it's always in light of our hope that we remember. And then finally, obedience. Well, obedience is to act as if those things actually happened, as if the hope actually is true. And it is to move towards your hope, to live under the story that you are telling through memory and hope. And obedience does... Obedience is three things. First of all, it is the result of what you believe. So as a result of how you understand hope, how you've told the story that's happened before, you will act in a particular way. And therefore, secondly, it is a witness to that story. So it directs others to the truth or not of the story that you live in. And thirdly, it draws you into the story further. It's formative on you. It does something to you by practice. And therefore, the psalmist is saying, when you do these three things, when you live an integrated life in which your heart hopes and, and loves forwards to a particular end, when your mind remembers and when your body obeys, when you live that integrated life, that is what is to dr be drawn into a steadfast and faithful life. But what the psalmist is also saying is when we don't do these things, they also have an impact on us. They are deformative. They draw us into another story. When we disobey, we are disobeying the story that God tells us, but we are also obeying a different story. We are proclaiming the truth of a different hope, of a different way of looking at the past. So we live at the cross-section of these two, of, of lots of different ways, of remembering, of hoping, and obeying. Marilyn Robinson, a few years ago, in an essay in the New York Times on gun control, wrote this. Those who forget God, the single assurance of our safety, however that word may be defined, can be recognized in the fact they make irrational responses to irrational fears. So the story we live in the background is the background to which we make all sorts of gut reactions and decisions. What we believe about God, what we truly believe about God on the deepest subconscious level influences our obedience, our behavior, 
on a day-to-day basis. And the psalmist continues this argument by telling a story, by telling the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, in culture today, we have a kind of conflicting idea of what wilderness does. We're told lots of different stories about what it is to go out into the wilderness, to be on our own. Consider the words of this uh, important philosophical work that was uh, released in 2013. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. Now, those of you familiar with high philosophy will recognize that as the words sung by Queen Elsa in the Disney movie Frozen. And what's really interesting about that is it's a really clear example of the story that we are so often told about what happens in the wilderness, that Queen Elsa, or Princess Elsa at that stage, is hemmed in uh, by all sorts of expectations and repression. And then when she is able to escape the city, she is able to be herself, to uh, flourish the kind of what is truly inside her can burst out and be free. I discovered this week that during the writing of Frozen, uh, Queen Elsa, because it's based on uh, Hans Christian Elsen's The Ice Queen, uh, Elsa was originally the villain, and then they wrote that song, and they're like, oh, she can't possibly be the villain if we've written this song for her. Which is striking, and it shows how powerful the story that that song tells is, that we can't even imagine someone being a villain, because if someone is just breaking through of repression, is becoming their true self, is letting what's inside them burst out, that can't be anything near a villainous act. And so that's how we often understand Wilderness is a, is a space, is an empty space where we can just be ourselves and take up space. But obviously the reality is somewhat different. Because of this from earlier in the album that I quoted at the start of the sermon from Florence and the Machine in a song called Hunger. Florence Welsh, the lead singer, sings, At 17 I started to starve myself. I thought that love was a kind of lo- emptiness. And at least I understood that the hunger I felt, and I didn't have to call it loneliness, we all have a hunger. And that again resonates true. I don't know if if you, like me, have found moments where there's nothing hemming me in, and I can kind of, and I should be able to let what's in me flourish, but ultimately I find there's an emptiness and a brokenness in there. I go out into the wilderness, and actually I just am aware of my hunger. I'm aware of my need for something else. I'm aware that I am not independent and not self-sufficient. And so we live at the cross-pressure of these two stories about wilderness. And Psalm 70 affirms parts of both stories, because the reality is that the wilderness that it talks about, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt is a form of liberation. And yet, they also encounter the crushing search for meaning. And they navigate the ways in which they are not independent. 
It's an escape, yes, but there is still a need for them to be brought under a new story. They cannot just create their own. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, The Land, argues that these rights needed the wilderness. They needed a place of what he calls precarious provision so that they could learn to trust before going into the promised land because if they just went it from Egypt into the promised land, they would just replicate the same kinds of behavior and they would treat the promised land like Egypt. So wilderness is a form of liberation and it, but it, show, and it does show us our true selves. But as opposed to frozen, it shows that our true selves are broken in need of God, and in need of God. I first came to this psalm when listening to it in Bible one year and I was struck by verse 19 and the provocative question that the Israelites ask. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And I thought that's an amazing question. And then was surprised by the fact that God was angry. Surprised by the fact that this didn't seem to be the right question, because I thought that's such an amazing question. That resonated so strongly. That was such a challenge to me. He's like, do I believe that? And yet God, God was angry that they asked that. So I I dug in and, and tried to understand why they are angry. And I think fundamentally it's about the fact that this is a question that comes out of a hope and a memory formed by Egyptian expectations. So what they want from God and how they remember worship is formed by Egypt. It's a, it's a Egyptian expectation that prioritizes comfort. If you look at the instances where the, what, what the psalmist refers to happens in Exodus and Numbers, there is a clear comparison between the provision that God has given them and the, and the apparent comfort that Egypt provided. They are saying it'd be better for us to be slaves than be in this state of precarious provision in this wilderness. So quickly, let's look at three mistakes that I think the Israelites are making in their thinking about God and that we might make in our thinking about God. First of all, the text says they tested him. And I think here what it means is that much like the worship in Egypt was a transactional thing, was a means by which you worship the God to get something, in a similar way, there is a danger that they are treating God as a means to an end. That they are saying, God, what I want from you is this, this, and this. Give me this, give me this, give me this. And so their hope is reduced. Their hope is reduced just to sustenance and the things that God can give them. Whereas, and that, that is dishonoring to God because it enters into a transactional relationship and he is reduced in their minds to a provider. Whereas what these rites are led out into the wilderness to do is to learn to seek his presence. Simone Weil, the 20th century French mystic and activist, 
says we do not have to acquire humility. There is humility in us. Only we humiliate ourselves before false gods. There is the idea that if we are seeking anything less than God's presence, even the things that God provides, we are humiliated. We are made less than we are. So the question for us this morning is, are we seeking God for who he is? Are we seeking his presence? Or are we just seeking the things that he provides? That's the first mistake they make. Secondly, there is a lack of trust in God. In my verse it says, even though. So they say, okay, you've given us all this stuff. Even though you've given us that. Even though you've provided. Can you give us some more? They don't trust him. They're always grasping for more. And again, I think this is a thoroughly Egyptian way of behaving. Because in Egypt, power is arbitrary, it's scary. You just have to grab what you can because you don't know if it's coming tomorrow. Power is abused. And they're treating God like that. They're not trusting him for tomorrow. They're just saying, give it all now. And what God leading them out into the wilderness is doing is trying to expand their horizons to say, I can provide, but you don't need to get everything now. They remember Egypt as comfortable. And that's a false memory. But the way that Egypt and other forms of empire and power often work is that they try and make you feel like they're inevitable, like there's no other way that it could be. The world, another world isn't possible. And there's a certain security in that, to live under a system which is just saying, this is the way it is. And you accept that. The scary thing about Christianity is that it names the risk and how precarious life as a Christian is. And it says, it doesn't have to be this way. There are other ways of doing it. It shows you how the world really is, that we're not okay in ourselves, that we need something else. And at the, but yet at the bottom of that, there is a security. Whereas at the bottom of the Egyptian model of power, there is just arbitrariness. So Christianity lets us look at how the world truly is. Sufjan Stevens, in his song a few years ago, sung, there is no shade in the shadow of the cross. It is as if by looking at the horror of the cross and confident in the ways in which all our sins are forgiven, we can begin to approach how the world truly is and how we truly are. We can see wilderness for what it is. We don't have to just lie to ourselves that things are comfortable, that things are the way it is. So that's the second question we have is, do we see the world for what it is? Are we remembering things truly? Where do we see wilderness? Do we name them as wilderness spaces? Spaces where people are lacking? Or do we lie to ourselves that everything is fine? And finally, there is the, we are told that he struck the rock. Because I think here is the most profound mistake that the Israelites make. They don't 
because of this transactional model of worship, it doesn't even occur to them that God may give himself. What does it mean he struck the rock? Well, in Exodus 17, 6, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water should come from it, and the people shall drink. So God is saying, I will stand before the rock. So, the, so it says that the, the, the person of God, the Son, will stand between Moses and the rock, and Moses is to strike the rock. So Moses is to strike God. And that is how the Israelites drink. And the Israelites here are not recognizing the fact that God is giving of himself, that it's not about them, that it's not about them having to grasp and kind of, and, and kind of get by themselves or barter with God. But God gives of himself. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes the link and says that, and points out that the rock is Christ and the way in which it looks forward to the incarnation, to him coming as Jesus. St. Augustine, in his commentary on this psalm, says, The same Christ was himself figured to them as a rock, manifested to us in the flesh. So we read in this psalm that just as God, over and over again, sought them in the desert. He continues to seek us. He draws us back again and again to his table. And so we find ourselves at at that profound question once again, free from false expectations of God. And we find God asking us that this morning. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Do you believe that? Do you see wilderness spaces and places in need, people who are empty and thirsty, situations that are broken and unjust, wilderness spaces, And do you believe that God can spread a table in the wilderness? Throughout the summer, a very practical way in which members of our church and others are witnessing to this is that the Hackney Food Bank is providing food for uh, kids during the summer who would otherwise not be eating enough. Uh, because of the lack of school meals. There's a recognition, there's an empathy with someone else's wilderness space and motivated by conviction that just as God welcomes us and spreads a table in the wilderness, that we might literally spread a table for these children, for these families. What are the ways in which God is inviting you spread a table in the wilderness. And again and again, we come back to the fact that it is not through our strength that we do this, but it is because we return to his table, to his hope, to communion where hope and memory and obedience meet. And we go out and we bring others again and again. It is because of God's welcome. So this morning, are you after his presence?
is that what you seek? Do you see the wilderness spaces truly as they are? And do you dare to believe and act as if God can and will spread a table in the wilderness? Amen.